I don't think that the public always has awareness of what it takes to finally conclude that something is a war crime or not. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hello and welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts podcast. It's just me, Janet Anderson, because today Stephanie van den Berg, my podcast host, she's off on a jolly in London. And I'm not at my usual place, which is the Hague Humanity Hub, where we usually record, but I'm at a whore congress. Yes, you heard that correctly. It is a whore congress. It is a humanitaire oorlogsrecht. That's how it's said in Dutch, which is International Humanitarian Law Congress organized by the Netherlands Red Cross. And I have a live audience in front of me who are all trying to eat incredibly quietly, which is very kind of you, but do feel free to chomp away in the background. And the reason why they're here is because I have the amazing superstar of international criminal justice, Alphonse Ori. Welcome. Thank you. And those of you who may not know of him, I think anybody who studied international law probably does because he was a member of the Tadic defense team, which was the first ever case at the Yugoslav tribunal. He was also at one point a judge in the Supreme Court of the Netherlands. He is Dutch. He was a Dutch further on in some other very important cases, a presiding judge, I think, even at the uh, ICTY in the Ratkom Ladic case and in the Ante Gotovina case. And he is now currently still a member of the roster of judges for the residual mechanism for international criminal tribunals. Alphonse, I mean, we've only prepared for this very, very briefly, but I thought it would be interesting. Here we are at an International Humanitarian Law Congress, and you work in international criminal law, kind of inside the courts themselves. And I'm wondering sort of where the two meet. I mean, these international criminal tribunals have really only got going in the last 30 years, but IHL is much longer, older. I mean, the ICRC kind of points back to the end of the 19th century and Archie Dunant and the horror of war. And then we've got the Geneva Conventions from 1949. I'm sure people in the room will correct me with very precise terminology. I'm not, you know, it's not my specialist area. And now we've got these tribunals and really it's, in my view, it's a bit of kind of copy paste from IHL and stick it into your statutes. So then you deal with war crimes. So how do you think that international humanitarian law was incorporated into the tribunals? Was it well incorporated, badly, interestingly? How did it feel dealing with this? I would say it was summarily introduced in our statute. I can give you a good example of that because we find in Articles 2, 3, 4 and 5 of our statute, we see there are war crimes, grave breaches of the uh, Geneva Conventions, genocide, crimes against humanity, but that's not more than half a page. I remember that in the Tadic case that we as defense counsel, we asked the court what for the prosecutor has to prove in order to come to a conviction. Where are the elements of the crime? Because it wasn't clear. No, it wasn't clear at all. And then the presiding judge, uh, Gabrielle MacDonald, became a good friend later on. She said, well, 
interesting question. If you would please make submissions on what you consider the prosecution should have to prove. So you had to tell the prosecution what to do as the defense? To tell the court what we thought the prosecution would have, and the prosecution was invited to do the same. And I think we submitted perhaps 30, 40 pages to deal with the elements of the crime and all the sources for that, legal sources for that. And uh, at the end, of course, we expected the court to give a decision. But if you look at the transcript of those hearings, you'll see that, or you'll read that the trial chamber then said, well, on the basis of all these submissions, we do understand that you have a proper understanding of at least sufficient guidance that we can proceed with that. So, Okay, that was it. They, didn't, was it. they didn't make a decision. They no, just said, they, they, it's they, okay, guys. They said uh, this all is sufficient guidance for the presentation of evidence, and so we leave it to you. And that's, of course, we were a bit jealous when we saw that the elements of crime were so well developed in the by the Assembly of State Parties in the elements of crime for the International Criminal Court. Yeah, because then we have, you know, 20 years later, then, you know, behind the scenes, the International Law Commission has worked away. They've got, again, you know, lots more detail that, that you get into the ICC statute. Together with the statute, it's a kind of a, of a mini criminal code, code of criminal procedure and criminal code at the same time, yes. I suppose what I'm wondering now is that, so you have these cases going through the ICC and many other courts that have developed in the meantime, I mean, Sierra Leone, Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera. And each judge, though, must still be grappling with what this means exactly, how exactly international humanitarian law applies in their own court. Is there now more of a dialogue between the, I don't know, the practitioners of international humanitarian law and the practitioners of the courts? I often pleaded to intensify that. There's hardly any. And what you see also that there's a difference. For example, in the ICTY, the statute didn't say a thing about organized commission of crimes, which, of course, if if you look at the the statute of the ICTY, as, as far as co-perpetrators, aiding and abetting, etc. It's it's like copying a criminal code of the of the of the sixties. And of course, the last half of the of the twentieth century, of course, you found the development everywhere about how you can commit crimes not by putting the trigger yourself or by taking the object and make it theft, but how it's organized. And you find that in France, it's the Association des Malfaiteurs. In Italy, it's it's the mafia type of of organization. So, and for, you know, and here it's joint criminal enterprise. Or joint, we have developed in the ICTY the concept of joint criminal enterprise, JCE, different versions of that. But of course, in the ICC, they're still very much sticking to the concept of co-perpetratorship. And I think that in 98% of the cases, the outcome will be exactly the same. But you you see that there's no standardizing yet on these concepts. And that's, of course, the general part of criminal responsibility, uh, let alone all the the details of all the different crimes. Uh, And, of course, the ICC adds crimes to it. Of course, we can't change it anymore. By the way, the ICTY doesn't exist anymore. It's uh, only the mechanism now. So we are are winding down and don't expect any new developments from us. But of course, one of the issues that, that came up in the ICC was whether crimes which were perhaps not yet 
common law crime, whether they could be introduced nevertheless in the statute. Have you got an example of that? No, I don't have them, but no. there are some new kind of crimes okay. which are not yet part of, of the uh, customary law. And if they're not part of customary law, can you already introduce them in the statute, yes or no? This is all very technical stuff. Mm. Uh, and changing the Rome statute does take a very high degree of buy-in by the states. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes quite a, a high percentage to, to make a change. Yeah, you, you just need a lot of states to agree to it. And, then, and yes. then, so it takes time as well. And it's the Assembly of State Parties, which of course is to some extent... They're not only dealing with the elements of crime, but also with the law of procedure. And th there you see that in the ICTY, the judges have always adopted the rules of procedure and evidence, whereas in the ICC, it is the, uh, it's the Assembly of State Parties, with sometimes su surprising uh, results. For example, one of the things that struck me very much is that they adopted the rule, rule of procedure that if you had very important state business to deal with at home, that the chamber could decide that uh, you didn't have to appear in court. So a, a kind of a temporary absence in court. Now, you didn't need a rule for that at all. I mean, judges could always decide. decide whether somebody has to be yes. there or not. But of course, then you see that there was apparently a clear political interest to make clear that some of the accused, could it be perhaps that Kenya was involved in maybe, that problem? Maybe, you, know, you never know. Uh, that they wanted to stress that, of course, their important state business sometimes is uh, prevailing over the presence in court to answer to charges of international crimes. The other question I have for you is, I mean, we're in the middle of a war at the moment in Ukraine. And I see a lot of essentially IHL terms being thrown around of, you know, this is a war crime, that's a war crime. Does the public really have a strong understanding of, of what is needed to actually establish something as one of these real crimes? I don't think that the public always has awareness of what it takes to finally conclude that something is a war crime or not. Is that a problem, though? Well, I, I can imagine that if every wrongdoing in a war situation or if there's uh, something which is horrible to see happening, uh, that I do not mind in itself that the public is considering this as horrible and whether they call it war crimes or something else isn't of major importance, my view. But of course, if ever such a case comes to court, then, of course, you have to very precisely establish, first of all, the facts. So whether you call them war crimes or not, the first and most important thing is, what are the facts? And then second, of course, whether it's a war crime or not, requires that sometimes you have to go into details as is, was this shelling and the people killed by the shelling, is it collateral damage or whether just engaging a non-military Object. Uh, so, so that requires detailed investigation and debate in court. And if that may take you in court three, four or five years for one case, I don't blame the public for having watched television to come to, uh, to their own judgment, which might not be legally very solid.
Understood. I'm now going to open the floor to those who are here. We've got a nice selection of people who are attending this Congress and see if there are some questions coming up. What I'd like to, and I also have my colleague uh, Ariana, who normally works at the Hague Humanity Hub, who's circulating with a microphone. If you want to give your name, please feel free to do so. And we'll be interested to hear what you want to ask Judge Ori. There's one here. I'm Viola Pris. I work as emergency manager at Red Cross. Uh, following up on your Ukraine question, I uh, hear very much on uh, Ukrainian media that uh, they start up the cases. So all the war crimes, they say they name it war crimes and they say we start all those uh, war crime cases in The Hague. And there are a lot of such uh, texts like that thrown up to the public. So my question is, what are the considerations of Ukrainian governments can be not to start the investigation in Ukraine, but to bring it up to to court in The Hague? A very big question, but maybe we just kind of lay out what's what the difference would be between the ICC taking something on and and domestic justice taking something on. Because I don't know how many, do you happen to know how many thousands of cases the Ukraine authorities say that they're investigating now? It's it's 60,000, something like that? Well, if if you have like 50 shillings per day, you can imagine. And You're every just overwhelmed shell- by how many. Yes, exactly. Are- they, they, will, they will throw each time there is something they will throw it as a, as a war crime case. So what turns into, into something that comes into The Hague? The first issue, of course, is shelling. If you have 50 shellings a day, not every shelling is war crime. I mean, uh, shelling is a military activity. It's part of warfare. And it may become, at a certain moment, a war crime if, for example, you engage non-military targets. If you, if you shell a civilian building, then still there's... A, Often the debate about wasn't in the cellar there a military unit, but we have seen that very often in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, but first of all, of course, we are talking about individual criminal responsibility. So if you have 50 shellings, well, let's, let's assume that at least 25 people were involved in, in, in firing the uh, projectiles. Uh, there's no way that the International Criminal Court could deal with all those cases. There will have to be made a very strict selection, the most responsible. That's, of course, in the ICTY. It's clear that jurisdiction was over the most responsible and the most serious crimes. And that's the same for the ICC statute? For for the ICC, it's, it's the same. Of course, they can't deal with all those. And, of course, there's another difference, that as long as Ukraine is willing and able to prosecute themselves, the ICC has no jurisdiction. I mean, it's an admissibility requirement that uh, the state involved, Ukraine is not a party, but nevertheless for this context has accepted the jurisdiction of the ICC. But if they're willing and able to do it themselves. They might get to a stage of a question mark of how able they are, where if they're completely overwhelmed, then you also have the other states who are involved with the joint investigations, uh, states like Lithuania and Poland, who say they can do some of, the, some of the work as well. Yes, but that also requires, that depends on the national rules on the jurisdiction. 
For example, we have discussed this today a bit for the Netherlands. The Netherlands could only exercise jurisdiction if, for example, the perpetrator or the accused is of Dutch nationality or if he resides in the Netherlands. But we have no jurisdiction to try a case against someone living in Italy who's of Danish uh, nationality. So the center of proceedings didn't exist in earlier days, but within Europe, there's now an elaborated system of the transfer of criminal proceedings. But usually it's not, we are too busy, would you please take it over? Usually you need other links to bring a request for the transfer of proceedings to another country. But as we see also in the former Yugoslavia, this is a because of the magnitude and the numbers of of potential accused at a certain moment, you'll not be able to deal with all of them. And therefore, you have the local courts that have taken over. In, yes, but uh, in also in the cases. local courts. I mean, we, we see that the, the most serious crimes in the former Yugoslavia are now dealt for, with by the state court in Sarajevo, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. But, but even there, I mean, in such conflicts, easily two, three, five, ten thousand people behave in a way that could be qualified as a, as a war crime. And there's no, just no capacity to deal with all of that. So you always will have to make a selection, how horrible that may sound. Do you think that the public's expectations kind of get um, overwhelmed or get, uh, get made too big when, when they hear somebody like the ICC prosecutor talking about what, what he's trying to do? Does, for example, the Ukrainian public get too hopeful? You always have to be very careful not to give people false hope, especially for victims. It also depends a bit on the structure of that tribunal. For example, the criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was known for not, in its rules, pay a lot of attention to victims. That's better in the ICC, but at the same time, criminal law and criminal procedure are important, but will almost never satisfy the victims fully. That's not only on the international level, dimensions there are far greater, but also on the domestic level, uh, you'll see that victims will never be satisfied. That's also, by the way, is a part of the role of criminal law, because if the victims would be fully satisfied, you might have to reintroduce capital punishment, which, of course, we don't want to do. So, so the criminal law system is always a bit of a balance between the interests of the victims and the interests of the accused and to find a, a proper way out of that. Okay. Do we have another further question? So uh, my name is Matthias Kuipers. I'm an IHL intern at uh, the Belgian Red Cross Flanders, an alumnus of the Geneva Academy. And I was wondering, you being a witness at the front row of the development of ICL and international humanitarian law. From several sides, there has been the proposal of a new crime, which could be called ecocide. And I was wondering, as criminal law it has an inherent anthropocentric uh, character, how you see this development and, and how you see this being uh, developed as, as a potential international crime or both at the ICC or in an ad hoc tribunal? 
Great question. Thank you very much. We still haven't done a podcast on Ecoside, so I'm really sorry about that. So over I think to you. that it's very much promoted also by Philip Sands. I must I must admit I haven't given it a lot of attention until now. My first concern would be to properly deal with all the existing crimes and that's not a reason not to think about extending the scope of international criminal law. And of course, we have seen this when the oil fields were all, that was in Iraq, I think. Iraq, uh, Kuwait. Yep. Kuwait uh, situation. So I think it, it certainly needs attention. Uh, and the fact that Philip Sands is so much promoting it means that it's something serious, because usually if he deals with something, it is serious. But we have to make a distinction between the development of the concept of ecocide as, as a new crime and the establishment of tribunals or courts for that. Because these are two different things. And what we see at this moment is a shifting from international courts and tribunals to the national courts. I think under the influence of the tribunals and the international courts that most of the states have now brought their legislation up to date for the war crimes and the crimes against humanity, which was a more or less a neglected area. But we see a huge development in domestic legislation in that level. So it's the development of the law, but whether, also politically, whether you could establish an international court or tribunal for this, you have to ask yourself, where should it come from? Should it be a number of states which have concluded an agreement on that? Security Council, of course, at this moment, the momentum to create new tribunals might not be very strong at this moment in the uh, well, that's in Security Council. Well, that's an understatement. <laughs> yes, yes that's perhaps part of my profession, to understate if there's no need to say it stronger, but... Let's call a, a spade a spade. There is no way that Russia or China are going to agree to the establishment of new yes, tribunals. And, and what you see at the same time, that even if there's this paralyzed Security Council, that at least for the other crimes, the war crimes, crimes against humanity, you see that one way or another, it will find its way either to domestic courts or to courts still to be established. And the most important thing is to at least to preserve the evidence. And that's what's happening at this moment. You see the IIIM for Syria. Of course, there could no court be established, no tribunal be established. But at the same time, we see that other institutions are creating at least forces which will help to, to preserve the evidence whether that ever ends in a domestic court or an international tribunal or court is still unknown. Same is true for Myanmar. So I think at least to already make a solid record of what happens in this field might be an important step so that if it later would ever come to a jurisdiction who would deal with that, that at least the facts are clear. And that's where it all starts, international criminal law. First, facts, 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 and after that, judgments. Well, I'm going to ask you another highly speculative question. Uh, there is also a movement, also including Philippe Sands, towards a tribunal on aggression. 
because as we know that the ICC's ability to put aggression on trial is very limited, and in the Ukraine case, not at all. And there are worries that if this was going to go ahead, that we would end up with some kind of a tribunal of victors against you know, maybe those who are defeated on the other side. There was often a question around the Rwanda tribunal particularly, and maybe somewhat of the Yugoslav tribunal. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on the possibility of establishing a new tribunal on aggression specifically? And how do you avoid this uh, victor's tribunal epithet? One of the great new developments in both the ICTY and the ICTR was that it was not victor's justice anymore. Of course, if you're talking about aggression, you're talking about the higher state levels. We have now at least uh, defined what aggression is. Not an easy concept, as a matter of fact, but in Kampala it was finally established what aggression would be. We still have the problem that under international law, you can't prosecute a head of state of another state. So therefore, aggression in a domestic court is not easy to uh, to imagine it's a no-go yeah uh, i'm always a bit uh, <laughs> i'm always a bit softer <laughs> okay perhaps that's my experience in court if you are too loud already in the beginning then but i think between the lines you understand more or less what i, I mean and, and therefore you would need some kind of an of an international institution at the same time at this moment we can't expect much from the security council that's that's also clear then the question arises, what would be the structure, what would be the uh, institutional structure for such a court? And what we see already in the international courts and tribunals is that they're all different. They're all different. You can't compare the extraordinary chambers of the courts of Cambodia with the Kosovo Tribunal, which is purely domestic but internationalized that's again different from the lebanon tribunal the icc as a organization which is based on a, on, a, on an agreement convention between the parties is different from the icty which was a security council institution so the next question if you if you wanted what do you think and i would have no answer to that what would be the constitutional structure of such a tribunal and the question remains there. I'm going to wrap up the podcast now with our final question that we always ask, which is, is there anything that you're listening to, watching or reading? It doesn't have to be in this area. It can be a uh, zombie vampire movie, whatever you feel like, that you would like to share with our audience, a recommendation that you have. Oh, at this moment, we're rehearsing for the Messiah of Handel. So I would say everyone listen to the Messiah of J. Georg Friedrich Handel. Great, thank you. And I'm just going to open that question over to the audience as well. Would anybody like to share something that you're reading at the moment? Anything that you're listening to? Any favorite podcasts that you have that you'd like to recommend to others? Anything that you're watching? Your favorite Netflix series? Anybody got anything? Hi. I'm reading a new novel by uh, Herman Koch which is uh, always an amazing writer to read if you read Dutch, although he has been translated in several languages. And Tad Lasso on uh, Apple TV is a great series to watch. Uh, two very good uh, recommendations. Come on, don't be shy. Tell us anything that you'd like to share with anybody over in the corner. 
And I've just read Ontwapend, Disarmed by Fleur Ravensberg, and she works with the Dialogue Advisory Group. She shares her experiences in uh, conflict mediation in several parts of the world. So it's an interesting insight in her uh, daily work as a conflict mediator. Great. Thank you all very much. And thank you for giving up your lunch breaks to uh, to take part in this. I know that everybody's waiting to get back to the Congress again. Thank you very much, George Ori, for taking pleasure. part. Thank you very much indeed. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.